Um, so we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 12 today. Um, so although we didn't have the first bit read out, um, what I got Mark to do was to actually read the bits which I'm really going to focus on in today's passage, because it's a really long passage uh, today, but there's some really good stuff within it. So, so do, do keep an eye out um, for it as we go through. But at the very start of t- today's talk, I, I just want you to take yourself back, if you're above the age of 14, to your 14-year-old self. And if you're around that age, if you were very recently 14, then think back more recently to what you were when you were 14. When I was 14, um, England were in the semi-final of a major football competition, the World Cup. Uh, It was 1990. We'd never been that far before in a tournament since 1966. Well, sounds very familiar, this. Um, And we were playing Germany. And we had high hopes and dreams and ambitions of what, of what could happen. Now, sadly, as we all know, that all ended in tears, quite literally in the case of Paul Gascoigne. Um, but I was thinking back to my 14-year-old self back then. What were my hopes, my dreams, and my ambitions, other than the immediate desire for an England win at that time? Now, I, I had actually become a Christian by that, that age. I decided I, I, I'd been to a really, really boring Anglican church, I'll be honest with you. I was totally turned off church. But at the age of 11 and 12, really out of an act of rebellion, I, um, I'd started going on to this other church where they, they spoke very clearly the gospel. And I heard it over a course of months. And at the end of that time, I said, actually, I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ. And at the age of 11, I knew. I knew I was a Christian. And that, that was an amazing thing. And also, rather strangely for a 14-year-old, I also knew what I wanted to do in life. I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, even at the age of 14. Maybe it was partly the fact my, my own father had wanted to be a lawyer, but because he came from a very poor background, they didn't have the money to be able to send him off for legal education. And maybe I'd already harboured that as a result, I don't know. That's unusual for a 14-year-old. How many of the 14-year-olds really know what they want to do? My sons certainly don't know what they want to do. But there was a deeper thing here. It's actually not just what do you want to do in life, but what, what do you want to achieve in life? What does it matter for life to have meaning and purpose when you're 14? Because we know as human beings that after our basic survival needs have been met, the need for food, shelter and warmth, we actually do need something more. We're designed for something more in life than that. And the truth is, human beings need meaning and purpose in life. And if anything, the the last 16 months has taught us is that just merely existing in life is not enough. We are designed for relationship. We're not designed just to sit at home and have enough food and water. Um, We really aren't. So if I went back and asked my 14-year-old self, and perhaps think about your own 14-year-old self, what were your hopes, dreams and ambitions? What did you expect life to look like? And also, rather deeply... Is it actually really possible to live a life of true meaning and purpose away from God? Is it possible to thrive away apart from his people? Because if if you're younger today, if 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 you're here and you're all sort of around that age, there will come a time in your life where you no longer really have to come to church anymore. You know, you could actually decide, you get to the age of 18, actually, you know, church is no longer for me. And that's, you know, that, that's quite, that's quite a, a decision to make. But there has to be a reason to want to come to church and be part of 
God's people. Now you might think, what relevance has this possibly got to Nehemiah chapter 12? I mean, this was a group of people thousands of years ago in the Middle East on what seems to be a massive building project where they love names. Um, and and you know, there's something like 80 different individuals mentioned, I think even in this chapter alone. It's, it's just a remarkable number of people who were involved in that project. And what was that project? Well, that project was to rebuild the ruins of the holy city. And we see a, we see a whole um, we see a whole passage, if you like, through this scripture. Of it starts with the rebuilding. So if you look at the slide, rebuild is the first thing that happens. The walls and the gates of the holy city were rebuilt. But it, but more than just rebuilding, the city needed to be restored to how it was before. Restored in the sense of the people returning, bringing the city back to how it was before. Then it needed the people themselves to examine. Because it's all well having buildings, a nice city, but it actually needed people to examine themselves. And we see in Nehemiah people repenting, people saying, confessing their sins to God. And then finally, and this is going to be very much the, the, the focus of today's passage, it's when the people returned. God's people physically came back to him. Because in the Old Testament, God dwelled in physical places with people, in actual places. And Jerusalem, as the holy city, was a really significant place. It's where God met with his people. And hence, its rebuilding was really important to God's people because it was a physical manifestation of God rebuilding his relationship with his people. And in many ways, it's the pattern of God's relationship with his people throughout the whole Bible. We have this big phrase, God's redemptive purpose. What it means is that essentially ever since Adam and Eve, God's people had wandered away from him by their own choice. And yet God had constantly sought to try and bring them back to him, despite them constantly pushing him away. And we see that ultimately within Jesus Christ, the true redemption of man. Now the book of Nehemiah is, is a wonderful picture of how God restores his relationship with his people, how his kingdom is rebuilt. And by the time we get to chapter 12, the physical work has finished and it is time to celebrate. Now actually, in some ways, it is a little bit of a metaphor for today. You see, we're coming towards the end of a pandemic, and although I don't think quite there's going to be quite the celebration on the streets that we all thought it was going to be, because, look, cases are really high, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult, you know, it's a difficult situation, we know for a lot of people still. But there, is, there, are, there have been moments of, of celebration, and we actually hope that today will be a cause of celebration, unless you're Italian. <laughs> but equally... We who've been watching England for 30 years know full well to be well-armed when it comes to disappointment. But let's, let's see. It is really going to date this, uh, this sermon is. Um, so I asked at the start, you know, what, what does a life of meaning and purpose look like? And can this chapter of Nehemiah help us in that? Well, you see, the wall that's been built, the, the gate and the wall, is a representation of God's work in the lives of people. But actually... When we see the people returning, 
that's when it becomes real, if you like. When we see God's relationship being restored with them. And there's four points I'm just going to explore in the passage today. If you could have the next slide, please, Chris. These, these are the four points today from Nehemiah 12. Because being, being an active part of God's church demands sacrifice. We'll see that in the passage today, and we'll see how that applies to us. Secondly, actually, being part of God's church, or God's church is not built by accident. Actually, God is a God of order and of purpose. Thirdly, God's church actually thrives on abundant generosity. We'll see that as well, again, in the passage. And then finally, and and really crucially here, God's church works best when he is the focus of our thanks and praise. And that produces abundant joy. Okay, so let's look at the first point then. Being an active part of God's church demands sacrifice. So, the city had been rebuilt and restored, but it was pretty empty. The people had not fully returned. As we see in Nehemiah 7.4, actually it's really hard to defend a city with very few inhabitants. You need people to come back. Um, I went back to the office where I work in Birmingham in, um, in March in 2021. And um, it was just after the, we'd had the second lockdown, or we were sort of emerging from it around that sort of time. I couldn't believe how empty Birmingham was. It was just incredible. You know, it was just, just empty vastness. And I walked in the office, and this office was designed for 180 people, and there were five of us in there. And it, it was just really strange. And, and, and that's, in a sense, if you can picture what the city looked like at this point. And at the start of it, at Nehemiah chapter 11, we see the people casting lots, you know, deciding who's going to get to go back to Jerusalem. And then we have a great long list at the start of chapter 12 of all the people that have been chosen to go back to the city. Now, this wasn't the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You know, you win a ticket, you get to go to Jerusalem. No, actually to go back to the city demanded real sacrifice. Because these people had been living in the towns and villages in and around. They'd had their jobs there, they'd had their family there, they'd had their communities there. And to uproot and then go to a completely new city where they knew no one, new job, new home, they've got to build their home as well because there were no homes built, new community, must have demanded a huge amount. Um, actually, if you think about you know, Adrian and Pippa who are going to be um, coming to us later this year, it's a big deal for them actually. You know, they're, 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 going, to, they're going to be settling here, they know nobody in this community at all. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing. It's a, it's a sacrifice that they're, they're going through to do that. But the, the, the reality is that the whole thing about sacrifice, of giving something up, shouldn't be alien to us as Christians at all. Because we worship Jesus Christ, whose whole life was one of sacrifice. He came to the earth. God sent his own son to earth to walk amongst us and to, and to then suffer the most humiliating death at the hands of men, sacrifice himself for each one of us so that we might get into relationship with God through his resurrection. And it's because of what Jesus has done that actually we can come together today as a church. Because we don't earn, earn our place in the kingdom through sacrifice. No, that's been done. That's, the, the victory has been won. It's actually our own sacrifice 
in response to what he has done. And if you look at the history of this church, I mean, for those of you who are visiting today who don't know much about the history of us, we've only been going for three years here. Um, and, and although we're smaller in number at the moment, and it's one of the sad effects of the, the pandemic, that you know, we've lost a few people along the way. But we know that there are lots of people here who've been here because they've committed to be here. And it hasn't been a sacrifice for a lot of people. You know, it, the easy thing was to do to, to stay in your old churches or, or to stay where you were. But you've chosen to come here and be with us. You've given time. You've given energy. You've given money. And, and it's that story of sacrifice that really sets, sets the scene here, if you like, for Nehemiah 12. Because in order to build the city, people had to come and choose to live and spend their lives in the city. And the truth is with the church today, the church will not grow and thrive unless people are willing to sacrifice. And we all need to play our part in that. What, one of, well, I think one of the, the sadnesses of the last 16 months has been the fact that church has become a spectator sport in many ways. You, you, you know, we've almost, a lot of us have just become consumers. We're just able to sit there and almost pick and choose where we go and all this, that and the other. But that's not what church is designed to be at all. Church is supposed to be a family. And as I say regularly to my children, you know, it's not going to work around here if you just sit here and just have eat the meals that are put in front of you and never do anything in the house. And I can see my wife rolling her eyes above her face mask above the balcony. But the truth is, unless they do washing up occasionally, unless they help, then we're not, we don't function properly as a family. And, and that's, that's the truth of the church. We've all got to play our part in being an active part of God's church. And we see that there in Nehemiah 12. But the second point is, is that God's church is not built by accident. If you go down to where we start to the reading today, verse 27, we've got the gathering of the priests and then the gathering of the musicians. This was an, a wonderful Thanksgiving celebration. They were giving thanks for what God had done. And I, I just read it and you just think, this must have taken the most incredible organisation here. The dedication of the wall, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate. Uh, the dedication with songs of thanksgiving. And then you've got all these musicians who were brought in as well. The singers are brought together from the region around Jerusalem. There wasn't email in those days. There wasn't WhatsApp. That they physically had to go and find these people in all these different places around the area. And the priests and the Levites came and they did the whole purification thing. Somebody had a, had a really long clipboard here, organising all these jobs that had to be done. And... At every stage, there is great order and planning. Now, you think, well, you know, that's, that's, that's great, you know. Anything that happens has to have a lot of organisation. But actually, it's in the very nature of God himself to create order. If you go right back to Genesis, right at the start, the world, formless, dark, empty. You have the sea, the, the, which was the, the scary big place, and God sees it creates land and sea separately, and creates order out of chaos. That is in the very nature of God. For those of you who work, think about the job that you do. I, 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 was, um, I was at a talk about four years ago where um, it, it was being given by a guy who wrote quite a famous book called Thank God It's Monday, called Mark Green. And he, he posed the question, he said, think about the job that you do. What what is actually the defining characteristic of your job? 
And I was thinking, well, the job that I do is I, um, I'm a property lawyer, as in I buy and sell property on behalf of clients. How on earth is that serving the creative purpose? And then it came to me, actually, what my job actually really is. The reality, as a lawyer, I spend my life creating order out of chaos. That is essentially what I do. But then I thought, well, actually, that probably applies to most jobs, in truth. I mean, Keith here uh, looks after eyes. He, he, he essentially he works on eyes and, and, and helps people, essentially, to get out of the chaos of things going wrong, makes them better. Peter over there is an engineer. Get a whole group of car parts together, they don't make a car. But if you bring them together in an order, then suddenly order comes out of chaos. Even Mark is an accountant. He, only he can tell you what he really does on a day-to-day basis. Um, but the truth is we all know that everything thrives off being able to trust numbers. Mark creates order out of chaos. And that's the very nature about what was going on here. This construction project. Order being created out of the chaos that had been left behind by the destruction of the war. We're actually sharing in the creative purpose in doing this. I, I was talking about Nehemiah 12 with a, with a group of, um, of lawyers that I get together with on a Friday morning. And there was one lady who shared with the group about how um, when she became a Christian when she was 16, it was out of absolute chaos in her own life. She, she'd been brought up in foster care. She'd, um, uh, her foster parents loved her, but it, it was a really messy upbringing. Um, and by the age of 16, she said, she said she was in a mess. She didn't know where things were going in her life at all. And she said she became a Christian. And it was that absolute realisation of her faith in God that turned her life around. And she said, and then suddenly order came into my life. All of a sudden, because I had a focus. I had a purpose. I had a reason to exist in life. And um, I was talking to somebody recently who was talking about churches in, in inner city Coventry. And how... That they've seen how people who've become believers have had their lives turned around. And suddenly there is order in their lives. Now, I think we've got to be careful too much with this because there's a danger which we're saying, well, if we become too ordered in everything, we, we allow no spontaneity. But actually, spontaneity often thrives best where there is a culture of order and care and support around people. And you might well say, well, this is a rather dull thing to get excited about. Who, who gets excited by order and organisation? Well, when was the last time that you got satisfaction from doing a hard job well? I, I, I guarantee that you can think of a time where you have. Um, th- those of you who, who know me well will know that I'm a big supporter of Liverpool Football Club. And, um, and one of the great things about the, um, the journey of being a Liverpool fan over the last few years is that um, you, you've seen how the team has been built by the manager. And it's been built into this group of players who, when they, they, they won the Champions League and then the, the league last year, it was the culmination of those years of effort of building the team. Same, some might even say, with Southgate's England team who, let's face facts, lost to Iceland five years ago, lest we forget. And they've rebuilt it from there. And I think there's a lot of satisfaction in that the hard work is being rewarded and realised. Last night I took two of my sons to go and uh, uh, make 20 pizzas for a Hindu. And, um, and the, the boys came, and they were a little bit sort of reluctant at the start of the evening, but they got stuck in making the pizzas and we built them in the oven. 
And they just had great satisfaction and joy at the end of the evening from a really good time of us just working together to create something. And I just think that's the reality is of God's church. It's not built by accident. It's by people coming together and, and doing things together. God looked at the creation and saw it was good, and we are made in his image. And that's just the reality of building church. Thirdly, God's church thrives on abundant generosity. If you look at um, verse 47 of chapter 12, um, you'll see, uh, So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They set aside the portions for the other Levites, and for the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. Now, there's a great example in the Bible of God's church flourishing in certain places. And do you know what the common denominator is when God's church tends to thrive? Well, certainly from my, um, my review of various, various examples, it, 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 it's a care for each other and a real generosity. Um, I last stood here almost exactly three months ago uh, on the 12th of April when um, I spoke about the church in Antioch in Acts. And what a wonderful example that church was of how you had other Christians who were in a fat time of famine and they clubbed together and they had very little money and they sent that money to that other church. And again, you see here, God's people coming together and they're providing for one another. They're providing for the people who can't provide for themselves. Now, Christians are often reluctant to talk about money because reality is we don't tend to talk about it a lot in society. But the truth is that the attitude towards money tells you an awful lot about your heart. You see, there's no coincidence that in, in 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul wrote that the love of money is the root of all evil. And it's not money is the root of all evil, it's the love of it. And, and in the church, I think as well, there is also the danger of going to the other extreme and, and, and going on about the prosperity gospel, which you, you hear about, which is very damaging. And this belief that if you're faithful to God, he will automatically reward you with prosperity. I mean, the danger, the great danger and damage of that teaching is the fact that it entirely undermines grace. <laughs> you know, this idea that by being a good person you can earn something is totally anathema to, to grace. But the reality is here, and we see this here, is that we have an abundantly generous God. A God from, from whom all good things come. And if we really see that and recognise that, actually the only natural response on that is to be generous ourselves. Um, I've been really struck recently by the generosity of this church. How um, we asked for pledges to help Adrian and Pippa move here and we've seen people being incredibly generous with their money in relation to that. People being really sacrificial. Some of you may have heard of the, um, the sort of quite well-known motivational speaker, Simon Sinek. Um, you can watch him on YouTube. Um, he's not a Christian, but it's interesting how um, some of the things he said says actually have a little bit of a Christian undertone to them. And one of the things he said that I was watching recently is that actually in secular life, really successful people often tend to be actually quite generous people. Oh, that's, that's interesting. But people who are generally generous with their time and with their money, often tend to find that it's a virtuous circle. And we can come as any surprise to us, because as human beings, we're created in the image of God. And God is an incredibly generous God. 
Because the church grows when people are generous with their time and their money. Think only of our own church here. Uh, We were able to plant and start this church with almost um, no support from outside. That was an incredible thing. But if we want to grow and thrive as a church, we are going to need more resource. We we would love to have somebody who we could have um, giving more days a week as an administrator when, when John steps down from that role. John's really kindly doing that role for nothing at the moment. But, you know, we are, we are going to need that. And, and we can see here that actually God's church thrives on abundant generosity. But the root of all this is in, the, in my fourth point today that we see from Nehemiah 12. God's church works best when he is the focus of our thanks and praise. And that produces abundant joy. So we go to verse 31. And we see them go onto the top of the wall. And then we proceed. Then we, then we see them give thanks from verse 40 onwards. And in fact, verse 43, I quite like this. Uh, the, uh, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Which is a very polite Bible way of saying they made an absolute racket. You could hear it all over the place. Um, we, um, we got together as a, uh, with, a, with a, few, uh, a few other people on Thursday evening because um, a few of us have been asked to play um, the music at a wedding that's happening in late August. And we, we sort of set up the kitchen and we had the bass player in one corner, the keyboarder in another, and a drum and, and a couple of vocalists and I was stuck in the corner with the guitar and we played. And I'll be honest, we were quite loud, but it was such a joyous thing. To get back and playing music after 16 months was was, was wonderful, uh, and I was really glad the neighbours were away that evening. I'll be honest with you, um, but but but, but that, that's the thing. There was a joyous outpouring of thanks and praise for God, and they could be heard for miles around. And why was it? Why did they do that? Because in verse 43, we see in verse 43, God had given them great joy. It's a virtuous circle. They had been faithful to God in building the wall and he'd rewarded them by protection from their enemies, allowing them to finish the project. And the response of the people in in, in Nehemiah is an example of how all God's people should respond when they actually recognise what God has truly done. They had got physical evidence of God's faithfulness. They, They were there in an intact city. And, but so often we forget how gracious and kind God is to us. And we fail to give him thanks. And the truth is, is that if we saw everything that he did for us, we would have incredible joy, incredible thankfulness. There was a time a few years ago when Anna and I were leading a home group at our previous church that we kept a prayer diary where we would write down the prayers every week and we had a very diligent person in the group who would do this. And we keep a record of those prayers that God answered. Do you know, it was an incredible, looking back on it, how many prayers that we saw God answered in that group. Now, God didn't answer every prayer. He won't answer every prayer. But my word, what, what, what answers to prayer we saw in that group. And that really sort of reinforced our joy in God and, and how, how gracious he was to us. And, and joy is a big focus of this passage. We see it mentioned in, in two places. In verse 27, 
At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites, who were the priests, were sought out from where they lived, and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Then down in verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. Joy is a byproduct of knowing the Lord. And we see it littered throughout the New Testament. Jesus in Luke 21, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. Romans 15, 13, the writer says, May the God of all hope fill you with joy. Paul, several times, 2 Corinthians 7, 4, I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. You know, Paul was suffering, and yet he experienced joy. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be filled with a true and lasting joy. Now look, if, um, if a football result goes a certain way tonight, and it's a big if, um, joy will be um, unbridled in the UK tomorrow. Well, I say the UK, um, probably not Scotland. Probably not Wales, actually, thinking about it. And I don't know about Northern Ireland. But anyway, certainly in England, it will be, it will be exciting tomorrow. It will be great. Children will be allowed to go to school late. They'll be, in the case of the very generous Park Hill, allowed to wear red and white clothes tomorrow. And we may, we may even get a bank holiday. Although I wouldn't bank on it. But the truth is, and I'm sorry to say this, the joy will not last. Because that is a reality of joy isn't it? In, in normal life, it's fleeting. It's a little bit like falling head over heels with somebody in love, an infatuation. It lasts for a short time, but it's fleeting. In fact, it's well known that only true happiness and joy in relationships comes from long-term commitment, where you grow in love together. And that's a model, a faint model, of what actually deep faith in God provides. Because through what God has done, through his sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying for each one of us, enabled by the Holy Spirit, is that actually you can have that deep faith in God that will bring long-lasting joy. Being part of God's community on earth the church, which is imperfect in so many ways, can and should be a source of great joy. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do his work. But he chooses to use us in it. And he delights in his people working with him. We've seen that in the way that we've been blessed here in the last three or four years. What a faithful God we serve. But the truth is, the, the, the more that we strive and we work for, for him, the greater actually our joy should be. So in conclusion, I've always been struck by this word community and what it actually means these days. We chose to call this church Kenilworth Community Church because it means something more to people than Kenilworth Evangelical Church or some other name that we could have come up with. Because actually community is something that people today crave. People want to be part of something that is going to give them meaning and purpose in life and being with a community of people, that really means something. A few years ago, a leader of a very large local church said, 
actually, in the future, he believes that the church will be the community. And that, that was an interesting thing. Because actually, when you've got a group, a diverse group of people coming together with a common purpose and a love for one another, that is a really powerful thing in our society today. In, in many ways, I think, as a church, we found this book of Nehemiah a word for our church in this season. You know, like, like, like many churches, we've suffered during the pandemic. We've had people who were coming here in January and February 2020 who sadly haven't come back to us. We've, we, we've lost people who, who, who've departed. It's lovely to see Marcel here today. Um, but he and his family have, have moved away in, in, in that time. Um, Mar- Marco and his family have, have, have left us in the last year. And I know that many of you have suffered in different ways. But the truth is, that is the reality of the, of, of the Christian life. That's the reality of the people here we see in Nehemiah. And yet, at the end of it, we see their abundant joy in God. We worship an abundant, amazing, generous God. And as Bill Patterson said a few weeks ago, actually, we have got the opportunity to build back better. And, and that would come through us getting involved, through us participating by organising, by planning, by sacrificial generosity, but above all, by recognising what God has done for us. And out of thanks for him, making him the focus, that will produce deep and long-lasting joy. At the start of this talk, I I took you back to your 14-year-old self, challenging you to think about what would produce real meaning and purpose in your life and whether you knew the answer to that. Can you answer that question? I think the answer to that question lies in this passage here. That actually it's only with a deep and enduring relationship with God, with his people, that actually there is real meaning and purpose in life. We're built in God's image. We, we get joy and satisfaction from a job well done. We get joy and satisfaction from giving to others. Everything else in life only gives brief glimpses of joy. Deep, enduring joy comes from true relationship with God and from his people. And from the security of knowing that you're loved and cherished by the creator of the universe. So if you want real meaning and purpose in your life, there is a challenge here today. There's an offer here. Come and talk to me at the end if you, if you, if, if, if you want to accept that offer. Because um, it's the most amazing thing. And, and we've got a glimpse here of God's people back then. Of the reality of what God's people can be now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that um, even though it was um, of an account such a long time ago, that it actually has real relevance to us today. Your, your people in, in many senses have not changed. We, we, are, we know we are sinful, broken people who wander away from you all the time. And yet, you love us so much, you, you, you are, are willing to come looking for us all the time. And, and, and ultimately... You came through to earth through your son, Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks for the fact that through his sacrifice, we can come back into true relationship with you. And pray that there's an outpouring of thanks from us for what you've done. And that will transform the way that we behave to one another. How it changes our lives. And how we function ultimately as a community of your people on earth today. Amen.